Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. We're on Mark chapter 14. We've been working now through the Gospel of Mark for some months, and we come now to a very poignant moment in Jesus' suffering as he prepares to go to the cross. Mark 14, 26, listen to the word of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you that very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. 32, and as they went to the place called Gethsemane, He said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away again and prayed the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. 41, and he came the third time and he said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen? You may be seated. The word humiliation is a devastating word, humiliation. If I were to tell you this morning by way of prediction that there's a chance, there's an off chance that you might be utterly humiliated this morning here at church, I can almost guarantee that most of you would have stayed in bed. We dread the possibility of being humiliated. To be humiliated means to be brought down low to be devastated, to be undone, to be rended apart. The word humiliation, of course, comes from the Latin word humus, which means dirt or dust. And so when we say that somebody is a humble person or we say 
that somebody has been humiliated, what we're literally saying is that they've been brought low down to the very dust itself. Their dirt level is what we're saying. And so we hate humiliation, most of us, all of us, right? You don't like to be humiliated. Again, if I told you, you might be humiliated this morning, you probably wouldn't be here. Because to be humiliated means to be brought low. And yet in Christian theology, when we begin to discuss what Christ did for us in the redemption, sometimes theologians speak of Christ's work of redemption in two great movements. We think, first of all, of his humiliation. This is what we're going to be looking at this morning, this downward motion towards the cross, towards the tomb even. Christ was humiliated, and by his humiliation, we mean more than just the beating that precedes him going to the cross, although that was humiliating as well. But in his humiliation, theologians have commonly spoke of his incarnation, his conception, his birth, his life, his poverty, his suffering, his mockery, his betrayal, his agony at the Garden of Gethsemane, of course, his dying on the cross, and then at the low point, which we're going to come to in a few weeks, his burial. That's this motion, this downward motion that the theologians speak of as his humiliation. And then, and we'll come to this too, the theologians then speak of this upward trajectory, this glorious upward motion of his exaltation. So first his humiliation downward and then his exaltation. And the exaltation consists of his resurrection, his ascension, his session at the right hand of the Father, his ruling over all things in heaven and earth, and one day again his glorious return. And so all those things we'll come to in due time. But in this morning's passage, we are looking at one of the agonizing moments of his humiliation. In fact, it even says in the scriptures that we just read that he fell to the ground, humus, dirt, dust, the Savior, the Son of God, now laying face down on the ground because of his work of redemption that's happening here at Gethsemane. By the way, I should mention this. Uh, many of you are familiar with the Garden of Gethsemane. I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's just across the hill from the Temple Mount. In fact, if you're standing at the temple, you could look across the hill and see the Garden of Gethsemane. And contrary-wise, if you're standing in the Garden of Gethsemane, you can look across this low valley called the Kidron Valley, where the Kidron Brook goes between these two hills. And you could see the temple from the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane was actually a part of the Mount of Olives. And you probably remember the Olivet Discourse we studied a couple of weeks ago. And so the Garden of Gethsemane is a part of that Mount of Olives landscape looking across the Kidron Valley to and towards the temple. John's gospel tells us that he entered into the Garden of Gethsemane, which probably indicates to us, at least most uh, archaeologists would suggest, that the garden was probably a special walled-off section or a garden prepared on that Mount of Olives where the olives grew. And here's the interesting part right here that the word Gethsemane itself literally means olive press. And so in this Mount of Olives where the olives grew, you have this garden, and in the garden is probably this olive press where if you were to Google this and look at what this looks like online, you see that an olive press is a big, heavy stone table where there's another millstone that circles around and it grinds down the olives pouring them into the olive oil, and that's how they would make the olive oil. But there was this process of pressure, crushing weight 
in the olive press. Gethsemane means olive press. And here's the irony that a lot of people miss in the Garden of Gethsemane is that the Christ himself is now being crushed and pressured by the weight of redemption, right? Because on one hand, he is completely obedient to the Father's will as we're going to see in this very passage this morning. He's completely obedient to the Father's will, and yet the Son of God is being crushed and pressured by the weights of the duty and burden of redeeming the world through his death. And so even here, as we look at Christ being crushed low, humiliated at Gethsemane, Luke's gospel ironically describes Jesus' suffering. Do you remember this passage? His sweat fell like what? You remember? Like drops of blood. And so there, there's that imagery of the, the Messiah being crushed by the weight of redemption and now his sweat is profusely coming from his body as though it were drops of blood. Do you see the olive press of redemption now taking place here as Christ suffers? And yet, despite all of this agony that he's going to go through, one of the verses that we just read says he's distressed of soul to the point of death. Christ is clearly beginning to suffer here. And this passage, yet throughout all of this, Christ will show himself to be victorious. Despite all of the pressure, even to the pressure of death, yet ironically, it's that death that is the victorious, life-giving, atoning work of the Messiah. And so what I want to do this morning as we look at our passage, we're going to work through this a few verses at a time. Uh, But I want to look at as Christ is victorious in his suffering, three contrasts between Christ in this scene and his disciples in this scene. So we're going to look at three contrasts between the victorious Christ and the disciples who, by all accounts, do falter through fear in this, in this moment. So Bible's open. Mark chapter 14 is the text. Let's begin Uh, together this morning as we work through this in verse 27. The first thing I want to observe this morning is that many will falter, but one will be faithful. That's clearly a theme here in this text. Many will falter, but one will be faithful. You know who the one that's faithful is, right? But here, look at the text itself. Jesus said to them, verse 27, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There's a lot there in those simple verses. First of all, there's a quotation from the prophet Zechariah 13.7. There was a prophecy that this would take place. All of this is fulfilling the divinely ordained will of God. Nothing here is utterly surprising, but the prophets themselves foresaw this, that in this moment of agony, Jesus, surrounded by his closest brothers and friends, the disciples, who he's been training now for three years, they, he says, according to prophecy, will all fall away. Not one of them will remain strong with Jesus in this moment. And not only that, but Jesus then reminds us in verse 28 of his own ultimate victory. But, he says, after I am raised up. What is that a reference to? But his resurrection, clearly. You will all fall away, but I will be raised up through this suffering is the idea here. So then one by one, the disciples, each one of them has to face this temptation on their own. Though they're working together as a collective in some sense, yet each man is going to face the pressure of this intense moment. Some of them will run. Some of them will hide. Uh, Peter will deny them. There will be a temptation to fight. Again, Peter will, will lash out against Malchus. Remember him? Cuts off his ear. 
Each man will have to face through this pressure of temptation. And Jesus says to them, he warns them ahead of time, you will all fall away. And by the way, when Jesus says fall away, let's just be really clear about this. Uh, Falling away here is not losing their salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying you're all going to lose your salvation. The reason we don't lose our salvation and no true Christian ever does is because Jesus is the one who secures it for us. So thank goodness it's actually not dependent on our strength in the moment. Otherwise, we would all fall away in that sense. But this kind of falling away is not the losing your salvation type of falling away. Jesus is talking about this momentary faltering in which each one of them will be crushed by their fears and anxieties as the betrayer comes and Jesus is turned over into the hands of the authorities. Now, in our fellowship group, uh, I have a fellowship group, so does David, so do some of you, have Bible studies of your own. In my fellowship group, we've been working through the great book Pilgrim's Progress, one of the classic works of Christian literature. If you've not read Pilgrim's Progress, do yourself a favor and start that book tomorrow. It's an amazing book. And in the scene that we just studied in our, my home the other day, uh, Hopeful and Christian are taken to what's called the Delectable Mountains. Now, you know the context. They're on this great journey, this pilgrimage, right? Symbolizing our path of discipleship or whatever. And uh, they come to the Delectable Mountains, and there they meet four shepherds. Their names are Wisdom, Experience, Sincerity, and Knowledge. And the four shepherds show Christian and Hopeful in this moment four vistas. You know what a vista is? It's like a place where you can see a long distance out from a mountain peak, perhaps. And the first vista they show them, and they look out and they see bodies mangled on the ground, bones and skeletons, a terrible scene. Terrible, off-putting scene. Whoa, what is this you're showing us? And then they move to the second vista. And in the second vista, uh, the four shepherds show them men who are blind because their eyes have been gouged out. And all these blind men are doing is just wandering among the tombs hopelessly. And they take them to the third vista. And they look out. And the third vista, men are just walking down the byway to hell, dropping into hell's fires one by one by one. Each of these three vistas is absolutely repulsive and disgusting, a clear warning to Christian and hopeful. And finally, they take them to the fourth vista. And in the fourth vista, they need the aid of a telescope. But through the fourth vista, they can see out to the very gates of the celestial city itself. And that is their encouragement. And what is Bunyan's point in writing this? What is Bunyan trying to do? Here's what Bunyan is trying to do. He's saying this, on the Christian journey of faithfulness, you will be disappointed very many times by men. Don't put your heroes in this world, brothers and sisters. You will be disappointed so many times. In fact, as you walk the Christian path, one of Bunyan's points is you're going to be surrounded by failure. And if that discourages you and you don't keep your eyes on the celestial gates of the city, you will fail like they. But Bunyan says, no, keep your eyes on the celestial gates and you will keep going. You will be preserved by God's sovereign grace. Don't be distracted by all those who fall away. That's the main idea of the text. And I'll tell you the same thing. If you're looking for a hero, we have no hero but Christ. Right? Put every biblical character into a colander and shake them up. Every single biblical hero in the Old and New Testaments, put them all into a colander, shake them around a little bit. Every one of them falls out, but who? Christ. Abraham fails as he lies about his wife, says she's his sister. 
Moses fails as he becomes impetuous and he's not permitted to enter into the promised land. David fails when he takes a census and takes more pride in his size of his army than in his confidence in the Lord God. Peter is about to fall big time right here in this text. Don't make heroes out of the people in your Bible. And I'll add this too, and this may come as a surprise because we're a reformed church here. Don't make your heroes those men in Christian history either. And we're going to celebrate Christian history next month because it's Reformation Month, Reformation Sunday and all that. But I'll tell you what, the Lutherans, they have, they're a little embarrassed about some of the things Luther said towards the end of his life. Did you know that? I don't like to talk about that. We Calvinists, we love John Calvin, but we're not so proud of the Michael Servetus situation, are we? It's not the first thing we lead with when we talk about Calvin. The Baptists love Spurgeon. But they're a little embarrassed about the fact that he smoked multiple cigars every day. We Presbyterians, we don't have such a problem with that, but the Baptists don't like that. In every Christian tradition, they have their heroes in the faith. And every single one of them, you will find failings and falterings and errors and disappointments. The further you get into church history, the more you will be disappointed sometimes with the heroes that we set up. And I'll, t- I'll add this too. You look in your own life. Look at all the Christians you know. Have many of them failed? Probably. Have you known people that have gone through serious difficulties in their life? Denied Christ? Fallen away? Perhaps. If you look in any old church, and maybe you're visiting for the first time today, you say, what a cute little country church this is. Boy, this is beautiful. Well, guess what? If you hang around long enough, probably somebody will greatly disappoint you. And so one of the things, one of the main points of this passage is simply this. Many will falter. One will be faithful to you. And that is Christ. Let's go on to the second observation. Look down at verse 29. Many will vow, V-O-W, vow. One will be valiant. Many will vow, one will be valiant. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But Peter said, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Notice what Paul, or excuse me, Peter is saying here. Look at, look at how clear he is speaking in verse 29. Even though they all fall away, who's they? other disciples, right? He's pointing them all out. These guys are going to fall, no problem. But I, he says, I will not. I wonder how they all felt in that moment when Peter said that. And not only that, but Peter's voice and his tenor and his tone seemed to begin to rise, verse 31. He said to them emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter makes the classic error of over-promising and underperforming. They say to do the opposite of that. Have you ever heard this before? You should under-promise and over-perform. It's a good rule. Peter does exactly the opposite. He over-promises and underperforms. He cannot complete the vow that he makes. I don't know if he took a legal vow here or an oath, but certainly the language suggests that. He said emphatically and personally, he said, if they all fall away, I will not deny you, he said to Christ. Personal promise. Got a question for you. Has anybody ever broken a personal promise to you before? Probably so. And by the way, I think there's a distinction between a lie and a broken promise. 
A lie is when you intentionally deceive. I don't think Peter is intentionally deceiving here. I think he actually means it. Uh, Sometimes we break promises not because we're liars, but simply because we are unable to carry out the words that we make. And we promise somebody, I'll try to pay for your college if I'm able to do so, but maybe we're not able to do so and we break our promise. Peter has broken his promise here because he thinks he is strong when in reality he is not. He has overestimated himself. And by the way, we're in the season of broken promises, aren't we? Because we're in election season. And if you have even one neuron firing in your brain, you ought to know that no person in politics ever keeps all of their promises. We are disappointed very many times. Don't even think for a moment there's going to be that one perfect candidate out there. They will all break their promises. And that happens in life. We expect it in politics. We expect it in marketing. Politics and marketing, these are two fields where we just kind of go into it knowing that maybe things are going to be overstated from time to time. But here's this personal, emphatic, first-person promise from Peter to Christ. If they all deny you, yet I will not deny you. And what happens to Peter? Exactly what he said he would not do, he does. But I would simply ask you this question. Has Christ ever disappointed you? There is one who always keeps his vows to you, and it is the Lord. Here's a couple of promises Jesus made. Listen to this. Ask me if he's ever failed you in these promises. Here's one from Matthew eleven twenty-eight: 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Has he ever broken that promise to you? I don't think so. Here's another one. Whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again, John 4, 14. If you come to Christ in sincerity, you will be utterly and completely, thoroughly satisfied with who he is so that you will never be thirsty again for the dust and the dirt that the world wants to offer you to drink down. Here's another one, John 6, 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast him out. That's why we don't have to worry about that other kind of falling away. Because Christ ensures the promise that he who he saves, he saves to the uttermost. We won't fall away in Christ. And it's not because we're strong. It's because he is faithful. Listen again to the promise. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast him out. John 6, 37. Now let's go to the very center of this text this morning. I want to make a little bit of a parenthetical doctrinal uh, assessment here in verse 36. Because this is important. Look at verse 36 in your Bible. He said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. If you, I guess it's been a couple of months ago, we studied the idea of the cup. Going back to the Old Testament, this idea of the drinking down of the wrath of God is the Old Testament image here. And Christ is about to do this. And in this moment, he prays a prayer that has troubled some people from time to time because sometimes it's kind of confusing. Like, well, how does, how does Jesus want one thing, but, but he says he'll do what the Father says on the other hand because we have our doctrine of the Trinity, right? That God exists eternally as one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And some people have pointed to this text and kind of just in all honest curiosity said, well, how does this fit into our doctrine of the Trinity? Here's Jesus praying to the Father, asking to conform his will to the will of the Father. Well, actually, this is a pretty important text here to understand the doctrine that Christ is both God and man. You do know that, right? That's very important. 
Christian doctrine holds that Christ is God and he is man. He is fully divine, and we've seen his divinity evidenced throughout the Gospel of Mark, especially in his performing of miracles, his walking on the sea, his stilling the storm with the word. Christ is clearly divine. And yet here in this text, we see his humanity as he falls to the ground and even prays to the Father. And so the question is, how do we work these things out? Well, if you've ever been to a Presbyterian ordination trial before. It's an exciting thing, isn't it, David? Kind of scary, a little nervous. And in an ordination exam, there's these questions that are asked of the candidate for licensure or uh, candidate for ordination. Here's one of the tricky questions that I always hear. Let's see if you'd pass. Let's see if you could be ordained this morning. How many wills does Christ have? The will, you know, that aspect of humanity by which we determine, we make choices. How many wills does Christ have? It's a head scratcher. And very often if you get a guy who has not read much Christian theology or the creeds or the confessions or church history, he'll think about it for a second and he'll say, well, one. Because we all have one will. But most of the other presbyters, if he were to say that in an examination trial, uh, they will begin looking and elbowing each other because the answer is actually two. How so? Because Christ is both God and man. And as such, Christ has a divine will. He has the very will of the divine nature. And yet, in his full humanity, he also has a human will. He is fully human. And so the answer that the creeds and the confessions and the the ancient church theologians have said is that Christ actually has two wills, the will of, of God, the divine will, and the will of man, his human will. And it's in this moment that we see this when he is praying and we see the alignment and the perfect agreement between these two wills as Jesus fully voluntarily submits to the Father's will and ordained decree that he must be crucified, even though he's obviously evidencing these human feelings of anxiety and fear and even terror of the cross. And so we have a fully worked out Christian theology of of Christ's natures, God and man here in this text. I just wanted to point that out to you because that's kind of an important passage for the doctrine of the wills of Christ. Let's move on then to the third observation. We'll wrap up here shortly. My third point this morning is that many will pray, but one will prevail. Many will pray, but one will prevail. Look at the sequence here regarding the disciples' prayer. Let's just pick it up in verse 37 for the sake of time. And he came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what's to answer him. And he came to them the third time, verse 41, and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of of sinners. And so three times the disciples fall asleep in the very moment that Christ and his humanity needs the fellowship of his friends. And that's important to understand too that uh, Jesus needs his friends to pray with him, 
not because the end result of this circumstance is going to be different if they fail to pray. He's still going to the cross and he's still going to be raised up no matter what. But we see the true humanity of our Savior here that he truly desires the fellowship of his close friends in this moment and they fail to provide for Jesus what he needs. It's, let me say it this way. It's not as though the whole of redemption history is resting on the weight of whether the disciples can stay awake or not. But Jesus, truly God and truly man, would that he have the enjoyment of his friends' fellowship with him even as he suffers. And this very thing is what they cannot provide him in this moment. It's a really disappointing text. And you've probably experienced this in your own life where you want to pray you know you should pray, and, and, and you, you even say to yourself, self, I'm going to pray, and then what happens? You get distracted or you fall asleep. Your mind goes into another place, and you wake up yourself up, and you, get, and you say, self, I'm going to pray this time. I'm really going to pray this time. I'm going to try. I'm going to try to pray, and what happens again and again is we fail to pray. And you probably think that your pastors and your elders are super spiritual people, that this does not happen to us, but I can assure you the same thing that happens to you when you try to pray and sometimes you fail is the same thing that happens to us. I've been given many prayer requests in my life as a pastor and people will say to me, Pastor, please pray about this. And I have every intention, I have every intention of actually praying and what happens? I'm a weak man and I, I either forget or I fail or I get distracted. So we thank and praise God don't we? That the weight of the world is not on the shoulders of our prayers, other, uh, otherwise things would collapse. But in this moment, we're reminded that even when we fail to pray, yet Christ is holding all things together in redemption. Now, don't get me wrong. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is utterly powerful. It says in James 5.16, the effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man availeth much. That's the old King James. So don't think for a minute that prayer isn't powerful, but it's a good thing to at least remember that even when we fail to pray, yet there is one who is prevailing for us, and that is Christ. And so let's end up here this morning uh, in a different text. Let's conclude our study this morning in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to take you to one passage that I think is actually alluding to the very story that we just read from, from Mark. So turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at verses 11 to 13 together this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. I'll give you a second to find it because I do want you to look at it. In the pastoral epistles of the, the two letters to Timothy and the one to Titus and then Philemon, uh, we find a, a, little, a little uniqueness here in that Paul says five different times in these letters, he says, this saying is trustworthy. This saying is trustworthy. And then, and then he gives them a, a quote. And in your ESV, if you have the ESV, it's even offset in poetic convention. You see how that is in verses 12 and 13, how it's offset. And the reason that the ESV does this rightly, I think, is because this section right here in 11... 12 and 13, it was probably a well-known saying that the early church might have even used in their worship services as part of their liturgy. And so Paul is saying, this is a good one. Use this. This is trustworthy. You can use this together in your prayers or in your worship. This is a trustworthy saying. And then he gives it to them. And listen to this. Tell me if you can't see Gethsemane in this moment. 
If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Isn't that good? If we deny him, he will deny us. That, that refers not to these momentary falterings and failings like in the garden, but if we ultimately deny Christ, if we turn our backs on the offer of the gospel, if we deny him as Savior, I want no part of you, Jesus, then at the end of all things, at the judgment of the world, he too will deny us and he will say to us, depart from me for I never knew you. But look at this. Verse 13, if we are faithless, yet he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny himself because the will of Jesus, his human will, is in perfect accord and harmony with the divine will, the will of the Father. And so he cannot fail or falter. He is the one person, believer, who will never fail you or falter even for a moment. And so in this text, as we wrap up, we see Christ betrayed so that you would stand secure, Christian. We see Christ abandoned so that you would have the full measure of his presence, Christian. We see Christ lonely so that you would be comforted by his presence. We see our Christ suffering so that we would have eternal peace and face no condemnation in Christ, Romans 8.1. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the faithfulness of Jesus Christ Lord, we repent and turn to you as many times as we falter, yet you are faithful, but we love you and trust you as the one who prevails and is victorious, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Church, let's go ahead and stand together and receive the benediction as we close. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hi, everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, And you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.